Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. The Harvard Business Review was saying that the ability to manage your own emotions is one of the biggest determiners in personal success. And if we can start this with our kids are four and five, think about what they'll be capable of when they're 15. You just heard Trisha DeFazio, an education consultant and former adjunct professor in the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. Today, Trisha DeFazio and Allison Roser, the co-authors of Social Emotional Learning, empowering teachers to support students, join Dr. Liz Brooke in a conversation about the role of social emotional learning for teachers and students on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Hello, I'm Dr. Liz Brooke, and today I'm joined by Trisha DeFazio and Allison Roser, The co-authors of the book, Social Emotional Learning Starts With Us, Empowering Teachers to Support Students. Welcome, Trisha and Allison. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Liz. Great. So let's jump right in because there's been a tremendous amount of conversation around social emotional learning, especially in the last few years. So maybe can we start by establishing what it's not? right? What are the myths and misunderstandings that you commonly run into with social-emotional learning? That's a really good question, Dr. Brooke, because you're seeing social-emotional learning in the news quite a bit. In fact, it's, it's become something of a political football, and that stems from a lot of it is just the misrepresentation of what it actually is, but what it definitely is not is a distraction from academics, It is not some like hippy dippy fad that's coming and going. It is not therapy. We're not requiring teachers to become therapists, but it does benefit a child and an adult's well-being. It's not the indoctrination of our children to any political agenda. There are some organizations that are even trying to conflate it with CRT, which is critical race theory. And the people who are doing that don't understand really what either of those things are because they couldn't be more different. So it's been thrown around quite a bit and it kind of still holds that charge, but there's nothing political about being able to manage your emotions. There's nothing indoctrinating about making responsible decisions and having positive relationships. So that's my take. Al, want to add anything? No, I think that's great. You did it, Trish. Thanks. Great. So you started at the end there, Trisha, to get into, okay, so we heard what it's not and maybe some of those myths, which I agree, it seems to be getting tangled with a whole bunch of things like critical race theory and political views and all of those things. So can you help us understand what social-emotional learning is and specifically how does it impact our classrooms. Absolutely. So the definition that we use for social-emotional learning comes out of CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning in Chicago. They have been in the game for, I think, the longest time, right? We started this research like in the 60s with the whole child approach. Since then, there have been a lot of other sort of like patchwork studies and research, but CASEL has been that like really big driving force 
And their definition is that SEL is a process. It's not a product. It's not a content area, right? So it's a process through which children and adults apply knowledge, attitudes, and skills necessary to understand and manage emotions, like who doesn't want that, set and achieve positive goals, nothing political there, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make responsible decisions, right? Sounds sounds pretty good if you ask yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that clarification. It's a process, right? So it's ongoing. There's not one scope and sequence. There's not one way of doing it. But factoring all of those things that you mentioned as part of those process and how it may differ from classroom to classroom or potentially even day to day, right? Is that correct? Maybe, Allison, you could comment on how that process might differ based on the different classrooms? Yes. I love that, Liz. It's a great question. So we have seen now, I think more than ever, that emotion and cognition are related. And so we understand that when we meet our students and every year, every educator knows that when we're in the classroom every year, we have a different configuration of students and that can vary day to day and things come up day to day. And something I love about SEL is that sometimes educators get nervous that it's something that they need to carve out time for or it's something they have to lop on on top of what they're already doing. And in reality, SEL can be woven into the instruction, into the classroom culture and happen in a moment. Right. You know, it takes only a moment to have that growth mindset piece when that student says, oh, you know, mistakes grow our brains. Or, you know, you haven't got that yet, right? The power of yet. So it can look many different ways. And there are so many different ways that we can connect with our students. I think something I love about SEL is it puts relationships and engagement at the heart of schooling. Right. One of the biggest pushbacks that you hear from teachers, and this has been the situation since the dawn of time, is that teachers don't have enough time, and they don't, and they don't need one more thing else on their plate. Both are true, but SEL is not one more thing on their plate. It is the plate, right? So we always make it a point to say, either you make the investment in creating connections up front, or you're going to have to pay for the effects of the disconnection later on. Either way, you're going to spend the time. So it is like, you know, it's a high growth stock. It's a perfect investment that will pay dividends, right? In relationship, in energy, in time, in community, in belonging all year long. Right. So we make that investment in connection and then we don't have to deal with the repercussions of the disconnection later on. So it's really preventative in that regard, especially around things like behavior and bullying. It is not an antidote by any means, but it is preventative. So I love that idea. You said, one, it's a process and it's not just one more thing on the plate, but it is the plate. I love that concept for a few reasons. It reminds me back when I was teaching first grade and thinking about all the different students you had and how really every day could be different. And to think about it as a vocabulary and a way you interact with your students, not as at 9.30, I'm gonna do SEL, right? And similar, like when response to intervention or RTI and MTSS came out, it was the same thing. It's really a model of learning. And this is a process of relationships. So I love that analogy. Thanks so much for sharing that. And in your book, you encourage educators to think of SEL not only 
as applying to their students, but applying to ourselves as well as the educators. So what prompted you to start thinking about or sharing the concept of applying SEL in that way? I think once the pandemic hit, Allison and I were like, how are we going to support these kids at home? We started churning out all these blogs for these different organizations. And then we were like, wait a minute, we have to support the teachers at home too. Wait, we have to support any parents that are at home with their students. And so we were like, the best thing you can give to a child is a regulated adult. And so the value in being able to be a proficient model, you don't necessarily have to, you know, parents don't use specific strategies. Their child learns from who they are in the world and how they show up for their families. And, you know, we learn how to interact with the world around us based on those adults and the people around us. And so Allison, I would think we can give them all these great strategies, but what good is it if, you know, it's like we're giving them an electric guitar, but if they can't rock out, how are they going to teach their students? So we've been, you know, big on you can't teach what you don't know and we have to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, which is chapter one, where we provide inventories to help the adults just see where they are right now in the process. So picking up on that concept of you can't teach what you don't know or kind of taking care of yourself first, I think, you know, we often hear on planes, put your oxygen mask on first, and maybe that similar approach. And if educators can set the tone, right, by embracing some of these techniques themselves, do you think that impacts the larger school and team cultures in addition to just the children in that teacher's particular classroom? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. And I first, before I answer that, Liz, I want to share um, Trisha and I also wrote the book because we have the utmost respect and care for our educators. Trisha spent over a decade in the classroom. I started my career um, in Chicago public schools. And so we know that teachers are really the unsung heroes in many ways that are shaping not only our youth, but our cultures, our communities. And so we really wanted a way to take care of educators. And so we find that when SEL can be applied, even at the administrator level, when it can happen peer to peer, colleague to colleague, when we can understand and empathize with each other and make better decisions, when our relationships are strong, not only student to student, but educator to educator, you know, some of the best resources that our teachers have are right down the hall. They're each other. Absolutely. But if we can't have them connected and we can't have them interacting with dignity and respect and and supporting each other, it's really a missed opportunity. Absolutely. I think about when I started teaching first grade, I had someone in the next room and someone across the hall that had been teaching for 25 years. And here I was a newbie. Yes. You know, and I don't think we leverage and honor the expertise we have in our own halls as often as we should. So thanks for that reminder, Allison. So kind of continuing on that thread of leadership and school culture, what are some of the indicators that school leaders should be looking for regarding their teachers' social and emotional well-being? I think first and foremost, because SEL starts with us, right, we're always, that administrator has to first look to themselves. Am I being a proficient model of responsible decision-making? There are administrators who expect teachers to create cultures in their classrooms that might not exist in the bigger culture of that school building. So, 
you have to have consistency. If you're asking your teachers to solicit feedback from students, then that administrator must also be soliciting feedback from the teachers, right? So there's that reciprocal process and also it's very empowering. There's a great Dina Simmons quote, which is, if we're not asking them what they need, we're probably not giving them what they need. And I think it's one of the biggest causes of adult burnout in buildings is not being asked what I need. The leader can't always give them what they need, but just the act of trying to see and hear educators and be there for them is humongously powerful. So I think it starts at the top. I love that, Trisha. And if I could just add one thing to that, something I love, and I'm so glad you picked the feedback piece, same brain. <laughs> same brain, always. For anyone who's going to write a book, you know, pick the one that ends up having the same brain so you can finish each other's thoughts and sentences. Also do it with Allison because she's organized. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you picked the feedback piece because as you said, we can't always meet all the needs or um, requests of our staff. But what it also does is it creates a ripple effect where people feel seen and heard. And so I think another aspect of social emotional learning and that healthiness is that there is a safe space for people to come together and share what is and what isn't working without fear of retribution or shame or judgment. And when you find cultures like that that are really healthy, where there is discourse, where there are disagreements and there's that open communication, you see that people are more likely to thrive because they realize they have each other's backs and that it's going to be okay to have that open communication. Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that growth mindset of I can't do this yet. Yeah. Right. And that kind of extends to this, that they are seen and heard. And also I would add valued, right? Seen, valued yes. and heard. And they have that safe space because they know that is the mindset of the leadership in the building. So I think those are really important points. In a recent episode, I spoke with Carl Hooker about ways that schools are really leveraging technology to more effectively manage the mental load teachers are experiencing. What do you see as opportunities for ways that technology can support teachers in their own social-emotional learning as well as their students? I think what we've seen recently in terms of data collection we were looking at these big, big studies they were doing in high school, school districts over the pandemic where they were just giving them these questionnaires saying, what's your biggest stressor right now? What do you wish your teachers knew? And the, the overwhelm was, was there, but it was quantifiable finally to say 98% of the student body of this district right now is completely overwhelmed by the amount of homework that they're getting because they have to do it online, which is also where they have to connect with other kids. They were saying they were totally exhausted from the screen time. So I think Anything that helps us collect data and those large amounts is super duper helpful. And there's also some really great apps out there that can help children and adults. Like, for example, there's like those mindfulness apps that can help you gauge your breathing. And even like your watch that tells you, hey, you're getting turned up right now and your heart's beating at 120 beats per minute. But what we want to always be careful of, because technology has a way of always, you know, it's a double-edged sword sometimes, is we don't want that child who uses maybe a breathing app to then if they don't have access to their phone, the money for their phone, the app or the money for that app to then feel like they can't do that without it, right? So like first and foremost, like SEL really is about our humanity. And we want students and adults to know like you have that within yourself, that ability to self-regulate, you don't need an app for that, right? But it's great if we could use it to help us manage. But that awareness is like really an inside job that 
speaks more to like who we are as humans. Absolutely. I mean, I know I use the Calm app to help me with meditation, but to your point, what if I don't have my phone with me or learning those strategies so that it's always within you to take three deep breaths, for example, during the middle of the day. So I think that is a really important point in technology can be that double-edged sword, right? How do we empower, but not lose sight that it is about those relationships? And I don't know, Allison, if you wanted to add more to that, but I agree. I like the concept of technology can help with gathering data, helping see trends, but we don't ever want them to feel if they are without their technology or can't afford technology or don't have access to technology, that they can't access these great techniques. I love that. Yeah, I would say the only thing I would add is because the way I look at SEL, at least, and Trisha, you can let me know, is that it's it's so relationship-based. That's something that I love about it. And so one way that we could even look at SEL is through the relationship lens with technology. So I would say less about using specific tech, but what is our relationship to technology? And how do we empower our students to make positive decisions and healthy decisions around their use of technology? Because whether we like it or not, it's, you know, it's here to stay. It's not going away. And so how do we set our students up for success with how they engage with technology? Absolutely. So the relationship part, it's a double meaning or multiple meaning of relationship with each other as well as relationship with technology. That's great. I think so. That's part of why I love SEL so much. Like there's so many different facets and ways that it applies to our lives every single day. Yes. Well, and I want to add the idea of like what Allison was speaking to. One of the biggest stressors for students had to do with social media and their interactions with people on social media. So helping those kids to understand this isn't all good for you. And sometimes you need to step away from that app or that's not about you. Whatever that person said that was mean and pointed and it feels like it's too, that's because they're unhappy. That isn't about you. So giving them tools to navigate a landscape that we ourselves did not have as young people. We are in this very interesting time where we have adults trying to help young people navigate things we couldn't even have fathomed 20 years ago. TikTok, social media, you know, anonymous bullying, all of that. And so that's where, you know, the SEL2 has to start with us. And there has to be some understanding around the fact that like, we have no idea what it's like to grow up now with social media there, constantly comparing yourself, interacting with people whose eyes you can't look into. And so I think that's like kind of a circuitous way of saying it's all related and we want to just give everybody the best tools they can to navigate the real world and the digital one with, you know, compassion and ease. Yeah, I feel like it's the foundation for the relationships that we create in the classroom as teachers and students, and then making sure that teachers and leaders lead by example and take care of themselves as well, especially coming out of this pandemic with so much trauma that our students experienced and all of us experienced and just that shared trauma that teachers are working with. So really, really important topic. Yeah. I love that you're sharing that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Sometimes I think educators can get confused that they have to present a certain way or or quote unquote, be perfect. Right. And I think some of the most rich learning for our students is 
how the educator models a tough day, you know, what it looks like when they make a mistake. I've met with math teachers that are so committed to growth mindset that they will intentionally make a mistake with a math problem just to model what we do when we make a mistake, right? How do we normalize it? Oh, there you go. Miss Roser just made another mistake. Um, you know, I had another educator who encouraged their students to share when mistakes were made and they'd get a paperclip each time. And if the paperclip made a line and touched the ground by the end of the year, they got a pizza party. Wow. <laughs> that is a very visual representation of growth mm -hmm. mindset. I love it. Yep. And so the students would be encouraged to participate. There would be no judgment. It was just, oh, there's what happens when we make a mistake. All good. Go put a paperclip. And, you know, what great positive reinforcement with a, uh, the pizza party. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Tricia, when you think about technology, you mentioned something about social media. Can you share a little bit more about how now, as many of us did not have to experience, how SEL overlaps with social media and all the apps that are coming at these students left and right? I think when you look at the five competencies that comprise SEL, right, self-awareness, self-management, responsible decision-making, social awareness, and relationship skills, all of those things exist in like that digital ecosystem in some way, shape, or form. And so social media is something that we can use, you know, it's like every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. So it's something that we can use to benefit us and connect us with others, but it also could have a negative impact as well. And because it's partially something that we consume, it's like anything else that we consume. Is it good for my body? Is it good for my mind? Right? It's like, are you eating a bunch of junk food? Are you looking at a bunch of stuff that's causing you anxiety and bringing you upset? Like that algorithm is just going to keep doubling down on whatever you're watching. And sometimes those things aren't super helpful. Right? And so I think helping our children to be more critical thinkers, especially around what they see on the internet. But again, this all goes back to, we need our adults to be critical thinkers. Not everything you see in print is the truth just because it's in print. But we grew up, you know, having one news source. Right. Right. That people all trusted. And now there are 75 stratified news sources that are being powered by an algorithm set to clickbait and inflame our amygdala. Right. It's working wonderfully. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right. That amygdala, the fear center in our brain, right? Those algorithms are set in very interesting and sometimes scary ways. So I do think it is, again, thinking about technology, um, blessing and a curse or benefit or tool that could be held in a different way to become a weapon. I think that's really interesting to break that down a little bit. And I want to come back to something you said at the beginning where you said, you know, social-emotional learning is not touchy-feely, it's not a fad. And you started to talk a little bit about the research behind this approach or behind the importance of social-emotional learning. Can you talk a little bit more about the research and how this is not a fad that's going away? The Castle website is a great resource for all the latest and greatest and also like the history of research and specifically social emotional learning, a term that was coined like in the 90s. But again, you've seen aspects of it going from like Waldorf schools, like behaviorist learning theory. Like there are so many different parts. SEL has been a part of like our inner wisdom 
forever. But now we finally have, thanks to technology and the attention in the pandemic, there's been so much more funding for studies. And we know that the short-term benefits are better behavior, better academics, and they're even linking the long-term benefits now to less drug use, a lower level of incarceration, finding that emotional regulation being one of the most important skills you can have as an adult, right? The Harvard Business Review was saying that the ability to manage your own emotions is one of the biggest determiners in personal success. And if we can start this with our kids, our four and five, think about what they'll be capable of when they're 15. Did that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. I don't know, Allison, if you wanted to add anything else. Yeah, I think just adding on to what Trisha was saying, while SEL was coined as a term in 1994, the research has only become more robust. So as Trisha mentioned, checking out the Castle website, seeing the different research that's starting to come out now, we're lucky in that because this isn't a new term, it's just something that's gaining a lot of popularity right now. We do actually have decades of research. Anecdotally, what we find when Trisha and I travel throughout the country and work with educators is that great teachers have been doing this for a long time. They haven't been calling it social emotional learning. So part of what we do is we come and we bring some shape and we bring some structure and we might give those tools or strategies. But when you talk with any educator about what works really well for them, they are practicing social emotional learning. I can't tell you how many people we meet with and they say, oh yeah, I've been doing that already. Or here's what I do. Or let me give you some examples. And I will just have this huge smile and say, that is social emotional learning. That's what we're here to talk about. Right. And we will definitely link to that Castle website that you were talking about. And in the All for Literacy podcast, we always want to tie things back to literacy. And you just touched upon it, both of you, in kind of that connection. So we know For example, improving student literacy contributes to more equitable educational outcomes. At the same time, focusing on that equity improves literacy outcomes. And so you do see that same reciprocal relationship with social-emotional learning and academic outcomes and the reverse. A hundred percent. The thing with literacy that I'm finding now where it's unexpected how much SEL, we know it's tied into every academic content area because to Allison's point earlier, emotion and cognition are linked, right? But there's a part of social emotional learning where we have a healthy identity and sense of self, right? We want to work towards kids feeling proud of themselves and their capabilities. And so where that ties in with literacy, and this is in the book, Atomic Habits, there's a big difference between saying, I'm going to read five books and saying, I am a reader. So that child who identifies as a reader is more likely to exhibit behaviors that are evidence of their identity versus I'm a struggling reader or some sort of, you know, deficit-based language will only then prompt behaviors that fuel that identity. So we really want to get into the space where we help our children, and this goes back to the growth mindset piece, which is, I'm a reader, I'm a writer, I'm a math person. How many adults in the United States walk around actively, emotionally hating math with the passion of a thousand sons? That is not because an integer stole your boyfriend or long division 
broke your window in your house, it's because we don't actually hate the content area of math. We hate the way math made us feel because it was taught in a very isolating and shame-based way where we were not allowed to make mistakes, right? And so that connection carries over to all of the content areas. So if we can help support healthy identity in our students, the sky's the limit then with what behaviors they will show up with to be evidence of that identity. Wow, those are such powerful analogies of it's how it made us feel, right? And to believe and to say that I am a reader, I am a mathematician. There is so much power in that belief. I don't know if either of you watched Ted Lasso, but his whole <laughs> show is based on belief, right? We have an SEL Ted Lasso blog because you know I sat in the pandemic and cross-referenced the intersectionality of the how of Ted Lasso and social-emotional learning competencies. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And season three is coming out soon. Oh, I was just going to add something. Yeah, I love what you said, Tricia, and turning and taking that deficit-based piece a little bit further. I think, you know, what we understand about neuroscience of the brain can also help further support our students and bolster SEL efforts. And so knowing that we have what's called the negativity bias, right, that our brain is very good at looking for anything that is not working, what could go wrong, what fell short. And so we have a real opportunity, particularly in literacy, for our students that are diverse learners, that there's neurodiversity, that they learn something in a different way, to catch that inclination for that negativity bias to come in and to start to see it as less than or worse than because it is different right? Different than what in so many ways, <laughs> we might ask, but that's a whole other philosophical piece. But so when SEL can catch and use that asset-based lens and to really bolster that identity piece, we catch our brain's natural inclination to point out what's wrong or less than and what we then make it mean about ourselves. Trisha and I did a webinar one time, remember this one? And we posted it on YouTube and we had a bunch of likes and we had one dislike. The amount of time oh, we spent on that dislike, that one dislike, I'm just embarrassed to tell you how much we time. We all do that. Yeah, yes. we didn't see all of the likes. We didn't see all the ways that it supported people and it was a contribution. Our brain was so focused on the ways that it, you know, that one dislike. I'm still not over yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, Allison, you bring back, again, the brain research and that this is not a fad or touchy-feely, that there is actually brain research around this negativity bias. I love that. And that's not just for working with students, but any way we talk about things like not talking about it as an achievement gap, but an opportunity gap, or not talking about as a deficit, but an asset. It is so, so important. So I've loved this conversation, sharing those analogies that really help us connect with what social emotional learning is, thinking about it as a process, not one more thing on the plate, but the plate itself and other strategies that you share in your book, again, which is called Social Emotional Learning Starts With Us, Empowering Teachers to Support Students. Thank you both so much for joining us on All for Literacy. Thank you so much. Wonderful being with you, Liz. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. And again, their book will be linked in the show notes. And you can join the conversation on Twitter by following Trisha and Allison at SEL and Beyond and myself at Liz Seabrook. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and take a minute to subscribe, leave a rating or a review 
and let us know what questions are you asking about literacy today. Join us next month as we work through what it means to be all for literacy. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 